day. So that concludes general questions. The next item of business is First Minister's questions. And members wishing to ask constituency or general supplementaries should press their request to speak buttons during question two. Members wishing to ask supplementaries on questions three to six, please press during the relevant question. And at question number one, I call Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. And could I begin by wishing everyone in Parliament and across Scotland a very Merry Christmas and a happy and healthy New Year when it comes. Today, though, I want to return to the issue of self-isolation rules. Uh, I've raised this with the First Minister at the last two COVID updates. And we've been seeking changes to the household contacts that it can end self-isolation with a negative test and for the 10-day self-isolated period to be reduced if someone tests negative twice. These changes would help to protect our essential services and our economy from grinding to a halt because of staff absences. The Government has already adapted its position on these rules. So will the First Minister now go further and make these necessary changes? First Minister. Firstly, President Officer, can I also begin by wishing you, uh, everyone across our Parliament and indeed everyone across the country, a very happy and safe Christmas. And I know we all hope and wish for a much brighter and healthier New Year. Um, I think this is one of the most important issues uh, that the Government is grappling with uh, now and over the days to come. In short answer to the question, yes, we will make changes just as soon as the public health advice says that the benefits of doing so outweigh the risks of doing so. I think, and to be fair to Douglas Ross, I think he's uh, captured this point uh, in his question. I also want, when we do make changes to the self-isolation rules, to try to do it not in a piecemeal way, but in a, an overall coherent way. So not just changes to the isolation rules for index cases, those who are infectious, but also making changes uh, to the isolation rules for contacts, particularly for household contacts who currently have the most stringent isolation rules. Uh, these are issues the Health Secretary and I are discussing with uh, public health and clinical advisers literally on a daily basis. The advice right now, given the very fragile uh, stage that we are at with Omicron, is that we've got to be careful that in easing self-isolation, uh, we don't inadvertently allow further spread of the virus and therefore compound rather than alleviate a problem. But of course, as soon as the public health advice says that it is safe to do so, uh, we will do so. And I would hope that over uh, the next days, uh, certainly the next couple of weeks, we will uh, start to move to a more proportionate uh, system in terms of self-isolation. Last point, presiding officer, because I recognise, in fact, I've cited this as one of the reasons why we need to take Omicron really seriously. I recognise the impact on the economy of people becoming infected and people having to self-isolate which is why uh, from today actually we have updated guidance on sector-based exemptions uh, for certain industries to try to alleviate that pressure now while we're considering the wider issue on uh, key sectors of our economy. Douglas Ross. Um, uh, the First Minister said we need to be careful and, and we understand the need for caution but the current rules are not sustainable and the First Minister started to say it might be days and then went on to say it could be weeks. And that's troubling because these rules at the moment, right now, are leading to a shortage of workers in our vital services, on our transport system and across the public sector. These rules are, whole, are forcing whole families and households to self-isolate for 10 days, even if they've tested negative. The First Minister accepted that exemptions were necessary and introduced them. She's just mentioned sector-specific guidance, but 
we are hearing concerns about how long they take to get these exemptions granted and indeed the numbers that have been approved. People across Scotland can't afford for this situation to continue for weeks, as the First Minister has said. So, First Minister, can we really afford to leave these rules as they are in the interim period when the essential services and our economy are already taking a hit? First Minister. So I'll come back to the point about essential services and the economy. I mean, I, I recognise uh, the importance of this. I would ask Douglas Ross to recognise that it is a difficult balance to strike, particularly at this moment. And I think the first and perhaps most fundamental point to make is this one, because it feeds into uh, the process of consideration that we are undertaking. It's not self-isolation rules that are hampering the economy. It's the virus that is hampering the economy. Uh, and the reason why we have tightened isolation uh, rules for household contacts is that one of the things uh, we already know about Omicron is that it has a much higher attack rate within groups of people who are uh, living closely together. So even more than was the case with previous strains, if one member of a household uh, tests positive or is positive for Omicron, uh, the likelihood is that all members of that household or significant numbers of the household are going to become positive in the days that follow. That's why we need to, to be cautious. The danger is if we move away from that too quickly, then all we do is spread more infection. And actually, the impact on the economy, which I absolutely recognise, gets greater. So we need to be careful about that. Uh, I absolutely agree we shouldn't take too long, but nor should we move too quickly at this critical stage of trying to manage our way through uh, the Omicron challenge. Uh, the point about critical services in the economy, though, is there have been uh, quite a significant number um, of exemptions approved, uh, but we ha have moved, and the updated guidance has been published today, uh, to a sector-based exemption process. And uh, the advice and the consideration that the government has given is that that is more likely in the short term uh, to alleviate the pressures on the economy in a safe and sustainable way than opening up much more widely the self-isolation rules right now. But this is something that is going to change in the period ahead. Uh, if I can say, and I know Douglas Ross picked up in my use of the, the word days followed by weeks, there is an uncertainty around this. I hope it is soon, but we can't take a view that we need to base this on careful public health considerations and then arbitrarily set a date uh, for doing it. So this is something, even over uh, the Christmas period ahead, that the government will be reviewing uh, very, very carefully. And just as soon as the public health advice says that the benefits outweigh the risks, uh, we will move to a more proportionate system. But in the meantime, through the exemption scheme, we will work to alleviate the pressure that is being felt on the economy and particularly on critical services. Douglas Ross. Thank you, President Officer. And the First Minister has just said she's basing her decisions on public health advice. So let's look at what experts in public health are saying right now. The epidemiologist Irene Peterson said yesterday that a move to a seven-day isolation period is a good idea. Clinical advisers for the UK government have also endorsed the move. And yesterday, we had a game-changing Scottish study on Omicron, one of the most detailed and promising studies to date. And it said the evidence shows that Omicron is substantially less likely to result in COVID-19 hospitalisation than Delta. It confirms that the booster dose offers substantial additional protection. Mm -hmm. And it suggests that, and I quote, the reduced severity may also have implications for isolation rules. 
First Minister, doesn't this report, just published last night, give us the basis to change the rules now and avoid the risk of threatening the viability of essential services and our economy? First Minister. I'll come on to the, the really encouraging uh, study that was uh, published yesterday in a moment. Um, and uh, that is important. But I also think it's important that we get the timing of all of this uh, right. Uh, Douglas Ross talked about uh, clinical advisers that he's quoted. He talked about the clinical advisers for the UK government. I'm not uh, dismissing the views of any of those, but I think most people would accept that the clinical advisers I have to listen most carefully to are the clinical advisers to the Scottish government. Um, and we are basing our very careful considerations on the advice that we are uh, being given. Um, and of course, that advice will continue to inform the difficult judgments that we take. On the study that was published yesterday, there were two studies published yesterday, one uh, the Scottish study and another uh, from Imperial College. They are really encouraging because they suggest that uh, the proportion of people with Omicron who are uh, requiring hospital care might be lower, um, and the estimates are between 30 and 70 per cent lower uh, risk of needing hospital care uh, than with previous strains. That is all really good. But where we are right now, the care we've got to take is that we don't allow the much higher transmissibility of Omicron to outweigh the benefits of perhaps its lower severity. And let me just quote uh, the authors, uh, or some of the authors of these reports, Professor Mark Woolhouse uh, of Edinburgh University, one of the authors of the Edinburgh, Edinburgh report said, an individual infection could be relatively mild for the vast majority of people, but the potential for all these infections to come at once and put serious strain on the NHS remains. Uh, Professor Neil Ferguson from Imperial College uh, it says it's clearly good news to a degree, but not sufficient to dramatically change the modelling and the speed that Omicron is spreading. It means that there's the potential of still getting hospitalisations in numbers that could put the NHS in a difficult position. So we need to take care at this critical moment, because if we allow the spread of Omicron uh, to get too far ahead of us, then even if it is significantly less severe, that is going to overwhelm us. So anything we do right now that risks increasing spread, such as removing self-isolation rules or weakening self-isolation rules too quickly, actually could be seriously counterproductive, just at the point where I agree we do see some really good news on Omicron. So these are really difficult judgments. Uh, they require really careful deliberation. Uh, and that's what the Scottish Government is going to continue to give uh, these questions in a very serious manner. Douglas Ross. Thank you. The First Minister prefaced her answer there by saying she has to take advice from Scottish Government clinical advisers. Is, is she telling Parliament just now that their advice is different to the advice I cited from the UK Government? I, I'm not making that as a political point. So the First Minister is saying clearly, I mean, these are independent advisers. So if the UK Government are getting advice on self-isolation rules, what is the different advice the First Minister is getting from her clinical advisers here in Scotland? Because the changes we are calling for are necessary to protect essential services and our economy. The First Minister wants to be cautious, but this seems too cautious. Why do people, why do people who have tested negative for COVID have to remain in isolation for 10 days? This level of caution belonged before we had the data from this new study announced last night. Doesn't the First Minister recognise that although we need to tackle COVID, we also need our services to function fully and our economy to keep running. Yeah. Yeah. First I, I accept all of that, but can I stress and underline, if we act rashly right now, 
uh, in the, these days, and I'm, I'm talking days here, then what we risk is a really counterproductive effect that makes what we are all living through longer uh, rather than shorter. And that's the uh, that's the weight of responsibility that rests on the shoulders of, of those of us having to take uh, the decisions. And uh, these studies are really positive, but these studies are also early data, as the authors of them are pointing out. And when even the authors are saying, don't get carried away yet with what these studies are telling you, then I think we should listen. Now, in terms of clinical advice, you know, clinical advisors will advise governments, and, and it's up to uh, the elected decision makers to decide how much weight to put on that. I accept that ultimately uh, the buck stops with me in terms of decisions, uh, but I listen carefully to, to clinical advice. Now, you know, it's for the UK government to do likewise. I, I know, for example, that there will be clinical advisers advising the UK government right now to do what this government, the Welsh government and the Northern Irish government has done and actually impose a few more protections to try to slow down Omicron. But they, as is their right, are deciding not to do that. So we're all coming to these decisions. Uh, I am following the advice given to me by uh, clinicians and by experts, applying my judgment to that with my government colleagues and coming, I think, to a balanced uh, decision that says, yes, we hope that in the very near future, we will feel much more confident about opening things up in all sorts of ways because we know much more about Omicron. We're not quite at that stage yet, despite these positive reports. And if we move too quickly, then by the time this parliament returns after recess, I suspect people across the chamber would be looking at me and saying, why did you do that and prolong the agony that we're living through? So this is not a, a perfect science. It is not an exact science all of the time. Uh, but these judgments, particularly at critical moments like this, are really important. Um, and if we err on the side of too much caution and things work out better than we'd hoped, we can lift these restrictions earlier. But if we err on the other side, we actually do a lot more damage and some of that damage is merged in human lives. And that's why these judgments are so important and why we must take them so seriously. Question number two, Anna Sarwar. Mr. Officer, can I first start, like others have done, by wishing you, everyone across this parliament and indeed across the country, a very Merry Christmas and a healthy, happy and peaceful New Year. Uh, Officer, during the first wave of the pandemic, a huge effort was made to reduce rough sleeping in Scotland. If we took urgent action then, we should be taking it now. Actually, it shouldn't take a virus for us to act. COVID remains a risk, and as we head into the coldest months of the year, the government's most recent homelessness statistics show nearly 2,500 people who made an application had slept rough in the three months before. Nearly 1,500 had slept rough the night before applying. This is clearly an underestimation of the true numbers of people sleeping rough in Scotland. So can the First Minister guarantee that as we head towards Christmas, no one will have to sleep on our streets this winter? First Minister. Uh, the government will certainly do everything in our power uh, to make sure that is the case. And we are working with, um, and I want to pay tribute indeed to the efforts of organisations uh, on the front line of this. In fact, only a couple of weeks ago, one of those organisations uh, itself made the point that the numbers rough sleeping in the city of Glasgow, uh, home to both Anna Sarwar and I, um, had reduced uh, markedly, and that is, is positive. Uh, but of course, many people are still at risk of homelessness and uh, at risk of rough sleeping. Uh, we uh, have updated the Ending Homelessness Together Action Plan. Uh, we are investing significantly in making sure that there are support services there for people who do face the risk of homelessness or uh, rough sleeping. And we will continue uh, to do what we can and to work with others to make sure that nobody is on the streets uh, over this winter period. 
Anna Sarwar. I welcome any reduction in rough sleeping, but those numbers are, of course, disputed. And one person rough sleeping is one person too many. And I know what the First Minister says, but that still means people will sleep rough this winter, and it doesn't need to be that way. We can eradicate rough sleeping now, but that means also taking real action to end homelessness too. <clears throat> Once people find their way into temporary accommodation, it should be just that, temporary. A home is more than four walls and a roof above your head. It is a basic human right. Too many will be spending this Christmas in temporary accommodation. The most recent government statistics show over 3,500 households with either a ch uh, with children or a pregnant woman were in temporary accommodation. On average, a couple with a child stay in temporary accommodation for 341 days, but in some parts of Scotland, it is as many as 865 days. That is more than two years without a home to call your own. Scottish Labour has a housing strategy that includes new homes, fair rents and banning winter evictions. Can I have will a the, question? Will please? the government support it? Thank you. First Minister. I am certainly happy to look at any uh, proposals that can help us collectively tackle homelessness and rough sleeping. Uh, the Scottish Government uh, of course, it doesn't just have a strategy. We are implementing policies and proposals. Uh, we've already funded record numbers of new uh, affordable homes. Uh, we have investment plans to do more of that. We are investing in the housing first approach, which is a really important way of making sure uh, that those who have experienced homelessness or are at risk of homelessness move into settled accommodation and get the support services around them so that they can sustain uh, that accommodation. I agree with the points about temporary accommodation. It should be temporary. And I know local councils work very hard to move people from temporary into permanent settled accommodation. During the period of the pandemic, when the first priority has often to be to get people off the streets and into accommodation, the numbers in temporary accommodation um, have risen um, and often temporary accommodation is good quality that is not always the case uh, and it can take some time for local authorities to find uh, the right accommodation particularly for families and particularly for larger families but that principle of temporary meaning temporary is a very important one. Um, presiding officer other than that this is an area of real priority for the government I think uh, even our critics would say that there is a lot of very good work being done right now but I'm always open-minded to other suggestions uh, and other proposals. Anna Sarwar. This is a problem that has been getting worse year on year since 2013, long before the pandemic. And the government were on track to miss the housing target even before COVID. That is why we need a coherent plan to end homelessness, but we must act to eradicate rough sleeping now. There are organisations the length and breadth of this country who will be working through Christmas and the New Year to support the most vulnerable. I visited just one of them recently, the Homeless Project Scotland, to see their amazing work. And I pay tribute to all the charities and each and every one of the volunteers they shouldn't have to do it, but thank goodness they do. But that means government doing its job too. So to eradicate rough sleeping this Christmas, will the First Minister commit to outreach support during the night to help identify people sleeping rough on our streets and find them accommodation? And will she open up public buildings to allow volunteers to feed the most vulnerable in a safe and warm setting where support services are also present to help? Let's not deflect responsibility. Let's act and end rough sleeping because this is about who we are and what we are willing to tolerate. First Minister. Um, I, I don't think anybody listening to me would have heard me deflect responsibility onto anyone. This is a, a collective challenge. Central Government has 
a leadership obligation. Uh, local government has a big obligation here, and I'll come back to, to that in a second. Uh, but we work with fantastic charities and voluntary organisations uh, who do most uh, on the front line of this. Uh, in terms of affordable housing, uh, Scotland has, and this is just a statement of fact, we have led the way in the UK in delivery of affordable housing uh, with more than 105,000 uh, affordable homes delivered uh, since 2007, over 70,000 of these for uh, social rent. That is way in excess of anything being done uh, elsewhere in the UK. But it is about more than that, and I think that is an important point to recognise it's about the support that is provided uh, to people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. We have already, through ending homelessness together, uh, we have increased funding to uh, enable those on the front line to much more rapidly help people and, and have access to the funding to do that. I am certainly happy to ask the Housing Minister uh, to look at whether there is more we can and need to do ahead of this festive period and into uh, the winter. Uh, on the point of public buildings, I am certainly happy to explore that. Many public buildings, of course, are not in the ownership of the Scottish Government. They will be in the ownership of local authorities, and there are often issues that local authorities have to uh, deal with around that, and we have seen some of that uh, in Glasgow in recent times. So, look, these are all issues that we take really seriously. We are doing uh, an, a significant, huge amount of work across all of these strands. But where I want to end on a point of consensus here, presiding officer, I do agree that for as long as one person is sleeping rough on our streets, there is more for all of us to do, which is why I will never close my mind eh, to suggestions and proposals that come, no matter where they come from. I will now take supplementary questions, and I call Joe Fitzpatrick. Thank you, presiding officer. The First Minister will be aware of reports relating to breast cancer services in Tayside. Can the First Minister provide an update on the Scottish Government's discussions with NHS Tayside regarding these issues and what assurances can the Scottish Government provide to my constituents about the ongoing service in Tayside? First Minister. Uh, well, firstly, I am obviously aware of the concerns that have been raised. Uh, NHS Tayside is also fully aware of these concerns. And let me be very clear, I would expect NHS Tayside to properly consider and investigate any issues that have been raised. Uh, and uh, the Scottish Government has been advised that the Board uh, has thoroughly investigated the matters raised. Uh, NHS Tayside has provided a comprehensive timeline of correspondence and meetings showing that issues relating to breast cancer oncology were openly discussed in a wide uh, range of forums, uh, many of which the individual who had raised these concerns uh, was present at and actively contributed to. However, uh, let me repeat, I absolutely expect NHS Tayside to properly investigate any concerns that are raised. Uh, and secondly and finally, presiding officer, we are fully supportive of a continued breast cancer service in NHS Tayside. NHS Tayside currently offers a full breast oncology service uh, with all patients treated uh, in Tayside, um, and they continue uh, to ensure there is a focus on recruitment to uh, continue uh, that service for patients across Tayside. Liz Smith. Uh, thank you, First Minister. Just like the rest of us in this chamber, you received a letter from Scotland's outdoor education centres earlier this week, setting out the very blunt uh, financial plight that they are facing. And many of these centres are facing closure, including those in Mid Scotland and Fife. Can I ask what the urgent response will be from the Scottish Government? First Minister. Uh, the Scottish Government will uh, respond as we will respond uh, to any organisation uh, raising very understandable and legitimate concerns with us. Uh, Liz Smith, of course, uh, while we need to consider uh, that letter and respond uh, in due course, albeit as quickly as possible, Liz Smith will recall that uh, around the last time she raised these issues with me, the Scottish Government did uh, provide support uh, to outdoor education. Uh, so I only say that as 
uh, I suppose, an indication of the fact that we are always keen to help uh, and will look uh, positively at helping any organisation through the difficult times uh, that they face right now. Martin Whitfield. I'm very grateful, Presiding Officer. Ambulance station staff in Preston Pans, East Lothian, have approached me about the rollout of a demand capacity review that began in 2016-17. I understand the Scottish Ambulance Service intend to roll this out across the whole of Scotland. The result in Preston Pans will be a reduction of ambulance cover to the public, a change of shift patterns, all because of a review, the findings of which are disputed. Our ambulance workers feel a responsibility and a pressure I hope most people never endure, and at a time when our communities may well look to these people over Christmas. Does the First Minister agree that forcing change without drivers, technicians and paramedics agreement at Christmas reflects a managerial approach that is inappropriate in Scotland, particularly in 2021, particularly at Christmas and particularly during a pandemic? First Minister. Um, on this specific issue around uh, the implications of the demand capacity review for press and pans, I'll ask the Health Secretary to look at that in particular and write to the member. Um, in more general terms, uh, firstly, you know, I take the opportunity to uh, pay tribute, given that we are at Christmas, to our paramedics and ambulance technicians across the country. They do uh, an outstanding job in circumstances that the rest of us can only uh, imagine. Um, and my gratitude to them is deep and very, very long-standing. Um, I think it is really important, not just at Christmas um, and not just in the ambulance service, that where change is being contemplated in the, the health service. And let's not forget the, the motivation of these changes, uh, whether people agree or not with the detail, is to improve the service to patients. But those who deliver those services uh, should be fully involved in making those decisions. When I previously did the job of Hamza Yousaf and was health secretary, that was you know, a discussion that I would often have with the trade unions in the ambulance service and, and indeed with the management in the ambulance service to make sure that that uh, happens. So I think that is really important um, and that those views are, are taken into account. So those are my uh, views in principle. In terms of the specific issues around press and pans, I'll ask the Health Secretary to respond in more detail. Emma Harper. Thank you, President Officer. Tuesday this week marked the 33rd anniversary of the Lockerbie Air disaster, which resulted in 270 people from 21 nations losing their life when Pan Am Flight 103 exploded over Lockerbie in my South Scotland region. I remember the night well as I was working in Dumfries and Galway Royal Infirmary at the time, and I remember the huge emergency service response. Will the First Minister join me in marking the 33rd anniversary of the disaster, in sending our thoughts to the families of all those who lost their life, and in paying tribute to all those in, involved in the huge emergency service response on Wednesday, December 21, 1988? First Minister. Uh, can I thank Emma Harper for raising that? I think, like uh, all of us of a, a certain age, um, I vividly remember uh, that night uh, switching on the television and, and just being utterly horrified uh, by the scenes that were unfolding. And I don't think those uh, memories, uh, for those of us who were not directly affected, dim uh, with the, the passing of years. Uh, and therefore, for those who were directly affected, this time of year in particular uh, must be uh, particularly hard. So I do want to take the opportunity to mark uh, the sadness of this anniversary and as a sad uh, moment every year uh, to remember all those in Lockerbie uh, who, uh, for whom these memories are very painful, for all those uh, who lost loved ones uh, and those affected in any way, but also, yes, the 
emergency services. Those who responded uh, that evening, uh, I'm sure, still uh, live with those very painful memories. Journalists uh, who reported on it, I know I've spoken directly to some of uh, those who reported uh, directly that evening, and they will never forget the horror uh, that was encountered there. Uh, it is a, a dark moment in Scotland's uh, history that we will never, ever forget. But for now, our thoughts are with everyone uh, who was so directly affected. Jamie Green. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I recently raised the plight of the silent victims of COVID, those dying of physical disease. Today, I raised the plight of those dying of non-physical ones. Job loss, uh, financial pressures, social isolation and a lack of mental health support are both the hallmarks of a lockdown, but also the causes of a breakdown. Scotland has the highest youth mortality rate in Western Europe. And last year, one Scot tragically took their own life every four days. Uh, these statistics, statistics are not just sad, uh, they are shocking, First Minister. So can I ask today what I asked back then, in our efforts to curb the spread of COVID, what is being done to ensure that those measures are not failing a generation of young people who will suffer and who are already suffering as a result of them? First Minister. It is it's important and it's right uh, to raise the impact on so many people in so many different ways of the steps that we have by necessity had to take to uh, control COVID um, and in many different ways because many people have been affected in many different ways we are seeking to support whether that's uh, to help children catch up with their education the investments in mental health to uh, help support support people's well-being um, but I think there's an important point here and I know it's one Jamie Green uh, will recognise and actually uh, the, the person I've seen articulate this point uh, best and most powerfully in recent days uh, has been Chris Whitty the Chief Medical Officer uh, for England it can be tempting and tempting for all of us at times, and I include myself in this, to think that if we just didn't take steps to control COVID, we would somehow escape these other impacts. That is not the case. If we didn't control COVID, all of these other impacts, the direct health impacts, the impacts on the economy, the impacts on well-being more widely would be even worse. This virus is what is causing all of these problems. And until we deal with the virus uh, through vaccination, uh, eventually, uh, but in the meantime, through action to suppress it, then we're going to continue to see these cycles of impact. So there's no easy uh, way through this, but we need to help all of those who are affected in as many ways as we can, and that's what we'll continue to seek to do. Michael Mara. Thank you, President Officer. Twice in the last 13 years, in times of great crisis, this country has relied on quantitative easing to save livelihoods, protect our economy and avoid a catastrophic depression. Earlier this week, the Finance Secretary posed a quite extraordinary question, which I hope the First Minister might answer. To be clear, this is not my question, but one from the Finance Secretary. Would it be such a great loss not to be able to conduct quantitative easing? First Minister. No, I think it would be a great gain if we had economic uh, management uh, that avoided the need for uh, these kind of things, because nobody should think these are, are, are good things because the situations that make them necessary uh, are not good things. I tell you what, I, uh, and you know, that's the kind of question uh, I would expect from the other side of the chamber. But I think over uh, the past few years, and particularly now, what would be so much better for Scotland if we hadn't been in a position of having austerity imposed yep. on us with all of the impact on individuals and communities of austerity? And if right now we were in a position with financial arrangements to support that position, where our public health response to a global pandemic 
was not being constrained by decisions of a Conservative government uh, that are in a complete mess. So perhaps Labour uh, might want to reflect on that and leave these kind of questions to the Tories. Question number three, Alex Cole-Hamilton. Uh, thank you very much, Presiding Officer. May I wish you and everyone else a Merry Christmas and give thanks to those who will be working over the festive period, not least those who keep us safe and those who are caring for others. Can I ask the First Minister when the Cabinet will next meet? First Minister. Uh, Cabinet is next scheduled to meet on Tuesday the 11th of January following the parliamentary recess. However, I would be utterly astonished if Cabinet did not meet uh, before that during the parliamentary recess. Alex Cole-Hamilton. I'm very grateful for that reply. Presiding officer, yesterday we learned that the government's social care workforce strategy is to be delayed until the spring. This came on the same day that social work directors admitted that lives could be lost because of the growing shortage in home carers. In their words, they are rationing care like never before. Alarm bells are ringing across this country, in East Lothian, in Fife, in Glasgow. It means vulnerable people not getting washed for days on end. Meals and medicines missed. Safety visits missed. One woman has been stuck in her bed for 19 hours a day for weeks, while a man was left soiled for hours because there was not a second carer on hand to help change him. The government has been warned about staff shortages before. I have raised it, others have too. The First Minister has to acknowledge that this is the deepest crisis we have ever seen in social care. So can I ask her, what is the plan? First Minister. Alec Cole-Hamilton would know the answer to that question, I think, if he had listened to some of what the Health Secretary had said. Can I, first of all, uh, address the point about the, the strategy. We have, I think, rightly decided to take a bit longer over a longer-term strategy for workforce planning, to take proper account of uh, the experience of and the lessons learned through the COVID pandemic, also to take proper account of our ongoing uh, work uh, to integrate health and social care through a national care service. But that is not the same as saying that we are not taking action now. So perhaps the most important thing uh, that we have done is fund uh, the recruitment of uh, a thousand uh, more members of staff to deal with, uh, in the immediate term, some of the issues uh, that Alec Cole Hamilton uh, is addressing. So there are short term pressures that we are funding health boards and uh, local authorities uh, to deal with now, while we learn properly from the experience of COVID uh, in terms of the longer term workforce planning. Uh, I think that is a, a sensible approach to take uh, through what is uh, an emergency crisis situation for health and social care. But we come back to the point, we need to suppress this virus so that we can allow all of these services to start to get back to normal. Question number four, Christine Graham. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to the recent survey by the Educational Institute of Scotland, which found that at least 50% of teachers said their well-being was poor or very poor. First Minister. Well, first of all, let me acknowledge the dedication of teachers across the country and, in particular, at this time, acknowledge their exceptional efforts in helping make sure that young people and children have been supported uh, through this challenging time. Uh, we take the health and wellbeing of teachers very seriously, while local authorities have a key role to play in supporting staff because teachers are employed by local authorities. In the past year, the Scottish Government has invested 
over £2 million in teacher wellbeing, with a package of support developed with the Education Recovery Group. Uh, the Government has also committed to reducing class contact time by 90 minutes per week to give teachers more time to plan and to ease their overall workload. And of course, we continue to make good progress on recruitment, with teacher numbers increasing this year for the sixth year in a row. And I'm pleased to say that the ratio of pupils to teachers is now at its lowest level since 2009. Christine Graham. I thank the First Minister for her answer, and as a former secondary teacher myself, albeit a wee while ago, but with teachers past and current in the family, I am aware of the dedication to and the stresses which go with the job. Can I ask the First Minister, with the priority to keep schools open and indeed reintroduce exams, as I understand, in 2022, whether more support can be given and will be required to be given to the profession, which is so key to Scotland's future? First Minister. Uh, firstly, President Office, can I say, knowing uh, how much she works to keep me on my toes in her current role, I've always uh, considered myself uh, lucky not to have been a pupil in one of Christine Graham's classrooms. Uh, when she was a teacher, of course, uh, she's probably thinking that she wouldn't have been old enough to be one of my teachers. I'm not sure if she's correct there or not. Um, I think I should probably swiftly... <laughs> I, I, I can feel... I can feel a sort of uh, unusual uh, unity of sympathy for me right now across the chamber. Um, so I'm going to swiftly move on. Yes, we will continue to do everything we can to support teachers as we try to get education uh, back to normal. I said the other day, and I will repeat it, is our priority uh, to keep schools open and uh, not have further disruption to children's education. But I recognise how difficult this is for teachers. Our, our main uh, way of supporting teachers right now is to recruit more of them uh, into classrooms uh, and, as I said earlier on, to reduce class contact time so that their overall workload is eased. Uh, but I think Christine Graham raises a really important point uh, and allows me to recognise again just how vital the contribution of teachers has been over the course of the pandemic. Sue Weber. the needs of children with additional support needs was in the top three causes of stress, according to the survey. And since 2010, the number of additional support needs teachers has fallen by nearly a fifth, while the number of children requiring additional support has increased by almost 70,000. Does the First Minister agree with me that the need for additional support needs teachers has been overlooked and must urgently be addressed? First Minister. I think there have been some changes to definitions there, which means that the, the figures there need to be treated with some degree of caution, but the overall point, I think, is, is one that's important to recognise. Of course, the overall numbers of teachers are rising, and while uh, teachers focusing specifically on uh, additional support needs are, are vitally important, uh, supporting children with additional needs is uh, a, a job and a responsibility of all teachers. So as we invest in recruitment uh, and as the numbers of teachers uh, rise, uh, that is important for uh, the support of children with additional needs, as well as uh, being important for pupils more generally. Question number five, Brian Whittle. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, to ask the First Minister what action the Scottish Government is taking to ensure that vulnerable individuals are able to access support from charities and community groups over the festive period, despite any required COVID-19 measures. First Minister. Charities and community groups can remain open over the festive period if that uh, is what they wish to do in order to provide the range of services uh, that they offer in line, of course, with the protective measures that are being advised uh, for everyone right now. Of course, these groups provide a range of really valuable support to service users uh, and the Scottish Government is committed to supporting them as much as possible. We recently, for example, invested a million pounds to support organisations 
tackling social isolation and loneliness, and we established the £15 million Communities Mental Health and Wellbeing Fund. Uh, but can I take this opportunity to express my appreciation and gratitude to all of the organisations, all of the staff and volunteers that support so many people across the country and send my very best wishes to them uh, for Christmas and the year ahead. Brian Whittle. Can I thank the First Minister for that answer? And I do recognise that the Scottish Government have put in place uh, funding for third sector and community organisations, especially in tackling uh, addiction. However, organisations in my area are saying that the funding is not always making its way to the front line. In Kilmarnock, the Foundation Hub, which is part of the Recovery Enterprises, has had 900 attendances since opening in April, delivering services to people that mainstream providers are un unable to do, yet they are reporting a chronic lack of funding. Kamarlock Station Community Village have 25 therapists delivering mental health interventions with a waiting list of only one week, yet have no central funding. I am sure the First Minister would agree with me that these services are needed more now than ever, so how are the Scottish Government ensuring that that funding put in place is ending up where it is intended? First Minister. Well, I think there are two points, because I, I recognise uh, that experience, and it is often an experience recounted to me by uh, community organisations in, in my own constituency. Uh, firstly, we have got to make sure, uh, as far as we can within the financial constraints uh, we have, uh, that the overall quantum of support for organisations is, uh, is good and, and rising. And I have talked about some of the additional sources of support that we've put in place and then because often not exclusively but often the decisions about which organizations are funded are, are taken by local authorities not by central government and i think it is important and i know local authorities work hard to do this that as much funding as possible gets to uh, organisations uh, that are closest to the communities they serve. Because in my experience, it is those organisations that deliver the best services because they are the most responsive to those they are trying to help. Uh, so I absolutely recognise the points that are uh, being raised. And I think it's incumbent on all decision makers to try to make sure uh, that that's reflected in decisions taken. Mark Ruskell. Thanks to the UK Home Office, vulnerable refugees in Scotland will be spending Christmas warehoused in rundown hotels, including in Perth. This kind of institutional accommodation has no place in Scotland. It harms people seeking asylum, it infringes on their basic human rights, and has been described as like being in prison. So can I ask the First Minister to provide an update on any correspondence the Scottish Government has had with the UK Government Home Office on the use of hotels in this way? First Minister. I am happy to ask the uh, relevant Minister to make uh, available any recent correspondence uh, there. I do not think I am exaggerating here uh, when I say there are acres of correspondence going back a long time between the Scottish Government and the Home Office about all matters relating to immigration and asylum, and uh, in particular the issue of the use of hotel accommodation. Uh, it is fair to say that uh, the correspondence coming from the Home Office to the Scottish Government is uh, rarely satisfactory uh, on these matters. Uh, the UK Government, in my view, through its asylum policies, uh, treats asylum seekers uh, inhumanely. Um, and I think the use of hotel accommodation in the way that Mark Ruskell has described is just one uh, aspect of that. Um, I do think that how we treat those uh, fleeing circumstances that we can scarcely imagine uh, seeking refuge here uh, does reflect on who we are as a society. And as we go into a new year, I can only hope that the UK Government and the Home Office uh, reflects on these matters and starts to treat asylum seekers with the dignity, uh, respect and humanity that they deserve. Question number six, Monica Lennon. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister how many missing person investigations 
have been carried out in 2021. First Minister. In, in the calendar year of 2021, uh, I think often these figures are reported in financial years, but in the calendar year of 2021, there have been 15,839 missing person investigations conducted by Police Scotland. Uh, Police Scotland's management data suggests there has been a decrease in the number of investigations since 2016-17. However, there is no complacency. Uh, work continues to improve multi-agency efforts uh, across Scotland through the implementation of the National Missing Persons Framework. Um, and I would take the opportunity to pay tribute to the dedication of expert, uh, and expertise of Police Scotland and their partners, because thanks to them, uh, more than 99% of people who do go missing each year are traced safe and well. Monica Lennon. Can I thank the First Minister for response? Paul Harley from Coatbridge has been missing since 2014. There has been a potential sighting, and in today's daily record, his son Paul has sent a message to his dad that it's never too late to come home. It's important that the missing and their loved ones are supported. The charity Missing People is working hard to reunite more families this Christmas. Can the First Minister help to get the message out that their trained helpline can be reached by call or text on 116 And will the Scottish Government do everything it can to support the charity's mission, which is for every missing child and adult and every loved one left behind to find help, hope and a safe way to reconnect? First Minister. Well, I think this is a really, uh, really important issue to raise uh, all over Scotland right now. Uh, indeed, all over the UK, there will be families who are missing loved ones and uh, worrying uh, about uh, the whereabouts and, and the health and well-being of their loved ones. And uh, if you are uh, one of those loved ones and you're able to, then picking up the phone to your family uh, this Christmas would be uh, the most uh, wonderful Christmas gift uh, you could give them. And to Paul's family, I hope uh, you, you get some news. Um, I do agree uh, that it's important that there are uh, services in uh, place to support families uh, in these horrendously distressing situations, uh, as well as the work that the police do. Uh, so I would absolutely uh, reiterate Monica Lennon's uh, advice uh, that there is help there. The Missing People Charity uh, number 116000 is there uh, should you need it. Uh, the Scottish Government actually provides some funding to the Missing People Charity uh, to increase awareness uh, and uh, use of their support service amongst people who are or who have been missing and their families. Uh, so that is important uh, help that is there for people and I would encourage anybody uh, in such a difficult situation to make use of that and end uh, by thanking Monica Lennon for raising such an important issue. I'll take one further general supplementary and I call Beatrice Wishart. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Given the £50 million investment of private sector funding into the Shetland Space Centre, would the First Minister agree that the Saxophon spaceport on Unst will be of national strategic importance to Scotland's space economy? First Minister. I think a development like that would be of uh, strategic uh, importance uh, and indeed importance uh, to the, the local uh, community and economy. And, you know, Scotland has got many uh, attributes when it comes uh, to space technology and hopefully next year and beyond uh, we will see that strength grow even further. Thank you. And I call Evelyn Tweed for a point of order. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Um, just to say earlier, I should have also noted that I'm a councillor 
at Stirling Council. Thank you. Thank you, Ms Tweed. That is now on the record. Um, that concludes the First Minister's questions, and we'll move on to the next item of business. There are no questions to be put as a result of today's business. Um, that concludes decision time. And can I just take this opportunity to wish all members and all staff in Parliament a very happy and safe Christmas. I close this meeting.